welcome to Murder Brunch. We are the Murder Brunch Bunch. I'm Joe. I'm Rachel. I'm Clinton. This is the podcast that brings you two tales of mayhem and murder. And when where we mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> what's the other part? Uh, two tales of murder and mayhem. And, oh, let me pull it up. This is the podcast where we give you two tales of mayhem and murder, and where we discuss where a killer lies on that doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I hope all of these make this it on the podcast. This well. <laughs> Would you like some more rum? <laughs> Again, I'm on my second drink. That's just what happens. Mm. One drink minimum, or maximum, and then record. Also one drink minimum. One drink, period. This is the podcast where we bring you two tales of mayhem and murder, and where we discuss where a murderer lies on Dr. Michael Stone's scale of evil. Now you said murder a lot. We do say where a killer lies. Do you want to change that? Or Give you me this. Well, okay. just All read right. the motherfucking <laughs> script. We're not off book yet. <laughs> <clears throat> Consummate professionals. Here we go. Where is it? Where I'm looking? Right at? in the middle. This is the podcast where we give you two tales of mayhem and murder and discuss where a killer lies on Dr. Michael Stone's scale of evil. Yay! We should just read it every time. That was yeah, so much easier. That's fine. <laughs> Memorizing lines is for losers. <laughs> or professionals. Oh, goodness. <laughs> What's that? Um. <laughs> Hello. Hello. People who listen to our podcast. Mm. All 12 of you. You faithful fans. Um, And we're happy to be here this morning. Absolutely, because today is a very special day for this Dr. Michael Stone fandom podcast that we have running. Yep, that's true, because it is our favorite person's birthday coming up on Tuesday. (gasps) Very exciting. Dr. Michael Stone's birthday is October 27th, and without him, we wouldn't be here. So happy birthday. Clinton, get into this Michael Stone love fest we're doing. How old is Dr. Michael Stone turning? That's rude. (laughs) (laughs) You can't just ask somebody how old they are. Do we we really want to know? Yeah. He's going to be 87. 87 years young. I love it when people say that. He doesn't look a day over 75. Does not. Does not. So here we are again. This is a very special episode. We like to take a little break from, well, not from mayhem and murder, because we definitely have that in this episode. But we're going to try something a little different on the third episode, where instead of doing a real live person... We're diving into a literature character, a literary character. Because sometimes true crime is just a bummer. <laughs> and you like to delve into those fictional, is that a word? Fictional? Fictitious. Fictitious, fictitious murders. There we go. Or fictional, I or guess. Fictional. Yeah, you added, you put both of them together. Yeah. A portmanteau, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you worry, our second uh, story is you true. Could, you could not see this, listeners, but I just gave Rachel, like, the biggest eye roll. <laughs> it's also worth pointing out our cocktail for today is pretty strong, and we've had multiple. That's true. That's very true. But, uh, yeah, our second story is true, so if you are looking for more of that true crime love that you're always looking for, it is on the second story. So, But, but no it is- skipping. No skipping. It is we'll fun to point out, though, uh, with all of the, like, there are a lot of fictional stories that have people committing murder, usually on a larger scale than what happens in real life, but sometimes also a little more smaller personal killings, and it would be fun to see where those murderers lie on this Yeah, it's just a, it's just an interesting take on your favorite characters. Yeah, and also with within the realm of uh, literature, you can get 
a deeper insight into their um, motives, motive, their background, their psychopathy. Yeah, absolutely. That is that is very helpful. So we we really dive deep on this one. So get ready, because here we go. But let's first talk about what's at our brunch. So we have among our interesting vittles, of course, we have a couple of highlights. Let's start with the drinks. Let's start with the drinks. We're having a cocktail that I don't want to give the name of it just yet. I will give it to you in a moment. But it has blue curacao, Midori, pineapple juice, oh, and vodka, and a maraschino cherry topper. So it's a very fruity, very tropical kind of drink. Delicious. Oh, I'm glad you like it. For food, we have... I brought a box of donuts. And I uh, I, I cooked us up some bacon. <laughs> Clinton always because treats us the best. <laughs> no brunch is complete without bacon. Absolutely. And it's very crispy, crunchy bacon. What kind of bacon? It is uncured, no sugar added, delicious bacon. Where, where did you get that? Uh, I got it at Publix. Just regular Publix in the freezer section. A little expensive. Sure. Uh, see, I always get all of my meat from Gaff's. Oh, Gaff's is the best. Gaff's mm-hmm. has the best meat. Yeah. So. The best. Yeah, they're meat. not a sponsor. We're just a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> they're a local butcher, and they're amazing. They are. But their bacon comes a little weird, doesn't it? It's like... Uh... Yeah, so they say that it is fully cooked and smoked, right. but when you buy it, it looks raw, and I have not had the bravery to then eat it you while it, it looks raw. Uh, I cook it anyway to crisp it up, but... See, I only like crispy bacon. Yeah, crispy bacon is the way to go. If you like uh, soggy bacon... Go ahead and turn us off. Well, when I go to restaurants, I always say I like bacon, but well done. So mm. that they give me burned bacon. Burned? Do you like it like charred? Well, I mean, that's it's like <laughs> when you're in a restaurant, you only get two options. You get the fatty bacon that's all greasy and like leaves a little puddle. Or you get black bacon. And I'd <laughs> rather have the black bacon. Uh, okay. So should we just dive into the story? Sure. I'm curious uh, when the reveal for the drink name tie-in is going to happen. Okay. While we are a podcast about murder and mayhem, every now and then we like to take a bit of the lighter side and look at literary characters and put them on Dr. Stone's scale of evil. So today I have chosen our first literary character and it is the infamous Lord Voldemort. Oh. Yes. So this cocktail is called the Lord Voldemort. The cocktail that must not be named. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, okay, so I'm going to just jump into uh, Mr. Voldemort's history. Okay, I don't think he was ever called Mr. Voldemort, but... But shouldn't he? Shouldn't he? Give him I mean, a little respect, please. <laughs> Lord Voldemort. Okay, and this is an interesting one for me because I think when I chose him as my character, I was thinking he was more of a Charlie Manson, kind of led the Death Eaters to kill a lot of people, and he didn't do as much. But as I found out, he killed... A ton of people. So let's just see how he falls on the scale today. Born Tom Marvolo Riddle on December 31st, 1926. He grew up in Wool's Orphanage, London, England. But we do have a history of his family, luckily, because obviously it's in the books. Maropi, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Maropi Gaunt was his mother. She was a witch. She was she had magical dissension from Salazar Slytherin. Uh, so her fam- family was very proud, very pure blood. But then they suffered a lot of inbreeding because of that, to keep that pure blood. So their medical history includes a lot of mental illness in her family. The Gaunt family had generations of inbreeding, producing individuals with violent natures. She died shortly after his childbirth. His childbirth? Does that make sense? Yes. The well, birth of him. The birth of him. <laughs> his father is Tom Riddle. He was a wealthy muggle, for those who haven't read the Harry Potter books. 
He was not someone who was magical. Muggle is someone who's not magical. But he was under the magic of a love potion from Arobi. So I did not know that. Yes, you did. I did not. Yeah, it's in the books. Well, I'm sure I read it somewhere, but it did not <laughs> stick, apparently. Yeah, that was the whole reason they got together is because Merope used a love potion on him. Oh. And so eventually, uh, and this was more of Dumbledore's theory, but eventually she lifted the potion to see if he truly loved her, and he did not. He noped right out of that he bullshit. He noped right out. See, I thought he was just a deadbeat, and he's fooling around with you, and then see ya. No, But no, no he yes. was a victim. Yeah, oh. he was. Um, but he did abandon Merope while she was pregnant uh, when the love potion was lifted. In the early years, Tom was seen as incredibly bright and he also had a early strong control over his magic, which is not often seen with children. Though being in an orphanage and not around magical people, he did not know what he had was magic. He just thought he had this weird power. So this is not a magical orphanage. This is a regular orphanage. Yeah, this is a muggle orphanage. Yeah. What a bitch. Who? Which one? His mom. She died. Oh. (laughs) Am I not listening to the story at all? (laughs) She died in childbirth. The last thing she said is name him Tom after his father and Marvolo after hers. Riddle. Tom. That's the only thing she told the orphanage. And then she died. Yeah. I've never read these books. (laughs) All right. Back to his childhood. Tom committed acts of animal cruelty as a child. He he once hung someone's pet when he was bullied. There was an incident, uh, an infamous incident, when he traumatized two other orphans in a cave during a summer trip. They went to the seaside and he took these two other kids into a cave and did something to them. This event is not described in detail in the books, but it was enough to scare his two victims into silence. So we never... I, and I literally have never found where J.K. Rowling described what happened in that cave. And I I would actually really like to know. I mean, it's horrifying to think about if you let your imagination run wild, which I'm sure was her effect. And I wonder if we could draw a parallel of similar real serial killers and incidents they had in their childhood to traumatize Absolutely. victims. And that's kind of why I pointed out the animal cruelty, traumatizing other children. Those are all key indicators of a lot of men who suffer from psychosis. And women, I guess you would say. So the kids that he traumatized into silence, was it like silence that they didn't talk about the event or like silence like they couldn't speak anymore? Honestly, I think it might have been both. That's a good question. I guess I always read it as like mute, like they made the children mute, but it might have been just that they re- refused to reveal what happened. Do you think he pulled a sea witch on them and just stole their voices? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I think if that was only the case, they'd be like, oh, look at my throat, oh, gesturing to it. But no, I don't, I don't know. I think it was something worse than that. He also committed acts of theft and trophy keeping at an early age. Acts of theft, trophies, that's also a key indicator for serial killers. He also is able to mimic human behavior very well. Once he let his guard down with Dumbledore, he never did that again with anyone else. He knew he had to keep a facade of being the perfect little boy. So when he gets to Hogwarts, he becomes a prefect at school. He's part of the House of Slytherin. He's a model student. He's well-liked and brilliant. So he he becomes popular. He becomes quote-unquote well-adjusted. Like, everybody likes him, but nobody knows the real right. Tom Riddle. And for a timeline, like, uh, age-wise, that's... You start Hogwarts at roughly the equivalent of, like, sixth grade, right? Eleven. Yeah, eleven years old. Okay. Yeah. Um, he has friends, but they're more of a group <clears throat> of servants, and they become his early Death Eaters. For those who don't know, Death Eaters are basically the members of his cult. 
And as a teenager, he starts using the term Lord Voldemort. So he's already using it at school. It is an anagram of Tom Marvolo Riddle. And I can't remember if I said at the beginning that there will be spoilers. <laughs> but I feel like... You did not. I did not. Okay, well, maybe you could cut this out and put it at the beginning. I will not. Cool. Um, there are definitely Harry Potter spoilers here. I can't imagine at this point yeah. anyone listening to this podcast <laughs> right. interested in the Harry Potter series would not have... Well, we are looking at it from a more clinical view, so maybe they'd be interested. But yes, you're right. So there are spoilers. Snape kills Dumbledore. (laughs) There are spoilers for (laughs) Harry Potter here. As a teenager, he learns about horcruxes. Horcruxes are magical items where you can store pieces of your soul. So if for some reason you need to um, stay alive, if something should happen to your body, you can go back and get that piece of soul and you can become alive again. Because his goal, Voldemort's goal, has always been to become immortal. The only problem is the way to create horcruxes is you have to kill someone. His goal is to make seven horcruxes because seven has a very magical influence. It's a very powerful number in the magical world. And isn't it like that's the most you can make? I don't know if that's true, but nobody had ever attempted to do more than one. I guess that's something that not a lot of people ever, like it's out there, it's knowledge, but people are like, no one's ever done it. Yeah, like the whole scene where he talks to Professor Slughorn about how to make a horcrux. Slughorn is horrified at the very idea of making more than one to begin with because you'd have to kill seven people to make seven. Uh, I do think I remember that conversation though about a soul split more than seven times or something. I don't remember. And it's also that your soul becomes weaker the more right. you split it i don't even know if weaker is the right word but distorted maybe might be the right word something something happens you become less and less human like the more you more you split it which is why we've got your the nose snake. becomes smaller and smaller <laughs> <laughs> little known fact your soul is connected to your nose um all right so now we're moving into adulthood he has graduated from hogwarts so we're talking about 18 years old 18, now at this point uh, he worked in Borgen and Burks, which is a well-known dark magic item shop. So he worked there while he searched for treasures that belonged to Hogwarts founders. And he was looking for those treasures to make them into horcruxes because he wanted something that symbolized what he loved the most. And Voldemort actually always loved Hogwarts. That is where he found his home. As far as his timeline goes, we're going to talk about his victims, but I, I'm going to keep going with his actual timeline for a little bit right here. But after killing Hefzibah, I'm not going to pronounce that right, Hefzibah Smith, he vanishes for 10 years. And I'll talk about Miss Smith a little bit in a few minutes. He's presumably building a following for anyone interested in dark magic and pure blood. So that's what he's doing in those 10 years, but they're, they're kind of unaccounted for. He's refused twice for the defense against the dark arts job at Hogwarts. He, he applies with his first headmaster and then he goes back when Dumbledore's headmaster to ask for the job but both times they tell him no way Jose you can't see it but Rachel is shaking her finger like she's scolding a small child <laughs> yes <laughs> and I think that's hilarious <laughs> no Voldemort no no Voldemort <laughs> he began the first wizarding war as far as I can tell this is the only war that they've had in in history I, I think so like I mean it's since they became no. a modern society I don't believe that okay, somebody's, somebody's rewriting the history books. well they call it the first wizarding war alright that's what they call it so like, much like so wizarding war one wizarding war yeah WW1 it lasts 11 years and one of the reasons why Voldemort is so successful is because he takes up sides with people the wizards have marginalized such as werewolves and giants he gives them a voice he gives them a purpose and by doing so, they fight against 
wizards. The war ends when Harry Potter, Mr. Potter himself, is unsuccessfully killed and Voldemort is sent into hiding. At this time, his cult of Death Eaters is disbanded, rounded up, imprisoned. At some point, he does possess Professor Quirrell to come back to Hogwarts and find Harry and take his revenge. So this is 11 years later. He has come back basically from the dead because his horcruxes are out there. He did manage to create seven of them. So he hung on for life until he could find Quirrell, who he possessed and came back to Hogwarts with the sole intention of killing Harry or using Harry to come back to a full life. So, and I know that I'm sure this is outlined clearly somewhere else, but you said he was born in 1916? No, no, or 26? 1926. Okay, so 1926, mm-hmm. graduated at 18, obviously, and then disappeared for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then an 11-year war happened. Mm-hmm. So 18 plus 10 is 28 plus 11. We're at like 39? Yeah. Okay. So at the time Voldemort possesses Quirrell. That's 11 years after the war ends. Harry has to age 11 years before he gets quarreled. Okay, so it's another 11 yeah. after the 11-year war. Yep. So, like, 51-year-old Voldemort. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The prime of his life. <laughs> but doesn't, like, age have no, con- like, hold on him anymore because he is not a person and not a human anymore. He's not going to age like us. Yes. Yeah, I would say that's true. He doesn't He doesn't age like everyone else, but he's still virile. You know, he's still... Which that also... That comes up later. That must <laughs> that not be word. quite... Right, because at 51, born in 26, that would be 77, and I don't think Harry Potter was an 11-year-old no. in 1977. No, we're missing something. So there's something in there, but oh, that's well, okay. You said he worked for Borgen and Burks for a while. He did work for Borgen okay, and Burks. Right. Yeah, he doesn't disappear until after he kills Hephzibah. <laughs> Thank you, J.K. Rowling, for these crazy, crazy names. Apologize to all the Hephzibahs out there, I guess. Okay, and then uh, after his rebirth, that happens in Goblet of Fire, if you're keeping track, he begins the second second Wizarding War, WW2. Battle of Hogwarts is his last stand, and as we know, that only happens a couple of years later. And, and that whole process takes seven years. No, because this, he doesn't. he's not reborn until the fourth. Right, but I mean from Quirrell possession to Yes, to the end. Death. That's seven years, yeah. Right. Um, and then he dies at, at the Battle of Hogwarts. So he never stands trial. He's never seen by a doctor. He's never assessed on what's wrong with you, Voldemort. (laughs) But um, we're going to take a crack at it. Okay, now I'm going to talk about some victims. And this is such a longer list than I anticipated. I'm gonna I'm not gonna run them through them too fast, but there's there's just a few things that I want to point out. So the first death that he is associated with is Myrtle Warren, who we know from Chamber of Secrets is moaning Myrtle because he releases the basilisk and using parcel dung, he instructs the basilisk to kill Myrtle. So that is his first victim. That is also where he makes the first Horcrux, which is his diary. In August 1943, he visits his uncle Morphin, so this was Maropi's brother, to learn about his lineage. And this is where he finds out about his father's name and where his father lives. Then he, I I wrote stubs, but that is a typo. He stabs, (laughs) no, stuns, that's what it was supposed to be, stuns Morphin, (laughs) and takes his wand and murders the entire Riddle family. So this is his father, his grandfather, and his grandmother. But he doesn't kill his, his uncle. No, he doesn't. He just stuns him. Because he took the wand, he also puts a memory charm on Morphin, and Morphin claims that he did the work. 
Oh, okay. So Morphin takes the fall. So he ties that up in a nice bow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is very premeditated very. and not just killing it's then a covering up frame job on top of it but honestly i think it's a premeditation on the fly because he meets morphin finds out everything immediately stuns morphin takes his wand go kills the riddle family and then blames morphin for it so okay. i mean he's quick thinker yeah that time to say yeah he makes he made a plan very fast right and Tom Sr.'s death is the second core crux, which is the uh, gaunt ring. He kills an Albanian peasant to create the third horcrux, which is the Ravenclaw diadem. He poisons Hefzibah Smith, Mrs. Smith, to make the fourth horcrux, and that's the Hufflepuff cup. Hokey, her house elf, takes the blame for that one. And he poisoned her. He poisoned her, which is a different MO as well. I was about to say, he's just going yep. all kinds of most murder. Of, most of his murders are done by wand, but this one was poison, which was interesting. He murders a muggle tramp to make the fifth horcrux, which is the locket. He murders a family of goblins near Nottingham during the first Wizarding War. Do they count? They're just goblins. Ooh, spoken like a true pure blood. That's uh, racist. Here's the, here's the interesting one I, I came across. Apparently, and this was something I didn't realize this, if you remember from the sixth book, the Half-Blood Prince, where they go to the cave and they go into through the lake to get the locket, there's an army of Inferi in the lake, which are basically like zombies who are reanimated corpses that can rise up and kill you. Apparently, all of those corpses, the army, are people Voldemort killed. Says who? Uh, the books. <laughs> Again, I did not read the book. The Harry, <laughs> Harry Potter wiki. Apparently, they're all victims of Voldemort. Okay. I don't know if I. I the, the way they made it sound was very directly. But so the the point though being is that during the creation of these seven Horcruxes, it's not just these seven people. Right. Oh no no. I mean, there are there oh, are multiple more. around. Well, I mean, being that he can use. Magic. Yes. And obviously he's not excluding dark magic. He could probably take out many, many people in just one swing. Yeah. So, okay. So he kills an army of people <laughs> to create the Inferi. Uh, Regulus Black was killed by those dudes. He killed James and Lily Potter. He could not kill Harry, causing his first downfall. But Harry becomes his, again, spoiler alert, his sixth Horcrux. While he is in his kind of... Ugly baby face. Ugly baby face. He kills Bertha Jorkins, and he kills her after torturing her for information regarding Barty Crouch Jr. And her brain is so messed up that he kills her, which makes his last seventh Horcrux Nagini, his snake. Next, he killed Frank Bryce, who was a muggle for overhearing his conversation about the World Cup. The second war begins, so now mass muggle killings are starting up again. Voldemort personally duels and kills Amelia Bones, who was head of the law enforcement agency at this time. He blackmails Cornelius Fudge, and when... Oh, I'm sorry, that's the Prime Minister of the Ministry of Magic. When Fudge doesn't back down, he wrecks the Brockdale Bridge, sending 12 cars into the water. So we're going to assume at least some of those people died. At least 12. Well, I mean, there could be multiple in each car. Right, but so. some of them might have lived. could get out through the window. I've seen the infomercials. You kick the window with the thing and the... I don't know. He tortures and kills Charity Burbage, who is a Muggle Studies teacher. He killed Alistair Moody. He tortured Ollivander. He killed Rufus Grimjor, taking over the ministry. 
He kills Maiku Grigorovich, looking for the Elder One. He killed Bethilda Bagshot, kills Geller Grindelwald. The Battle of Hogwarts begins. He kills Snape to gain power over the Elder One. And then Harry eventually defeats Voldemort because he is the true master of the Elder One. And this list of victims I just mentioned is not a comprehensive list. Those are just a bunch that I pointed out. But yeah, he likes to kill people. He likes to torture people. So there's no way of actually having a number. I don't think so. I'm sure someone has one. I did not find it definitive. But it would be impossible to say, okay, well, he killed a whole family. Right. That's true. Yeah. And it's not like we get the case of, often the case with the real serial killers, where they come forth and they're like, it's 342. Mm-hmm. Here's where it happened. Here's the bodies. Yeah. So He didn't keep a journal, as far as I can tell. This is a direct quote. Only after extracting the last exquisite ounce of agony, only when he had them literally begging for death, would he finally kill them. So he enjoyed the torture. And he supposedly, allegedly, had a sexual relationship with Bellatrix Lestrange at one point who resulted in a child. And that is based on the play Harry Potter... And the cursed child. Oh, okay. That's the whole thing of that. Oh, spoiler on that one too. His child is in there. It's a girl named Delphine. And Voldemort is not an attentive father, as far as we can tell. <laughs> is Bellatrix a nurturing mother? She is not. They're actually, they give the baby to a family, the Rowell family, R-O-W-L-E, who is a Death Eater family to raise the baby. Woo! Okay. So that is my fairly comprehensive retelling of Lord Voldemort and all of his crimes. Any questions or anything before we move on to the scale? I mean, yes, I have lots, but... (laughs) They're more uh, for Miss Rowling. (laughs) Now we're going to move on to our section in which we're going to rate where Voldemort lies in the scale of evil, which is a scale that has been produced by Dr. Michael Stone in his book, The Anatomy of Evil. The scale goes from level one, which is justified homicide, all the way up to 22, which is... Psychopathic torture murders with torture as the primary motive. That's it. <laughs> so tell us where you think Voldemort lies on the scale of evil. Okay. I have three suggestions. One, I think Voldemort started two world wars I mean, he's pretty bad so i'm gonna go ahead and say he is a 22 which is a psychopathic torture murderer with torture as their primary motive he does love torturing people 16 is another good one psychopathic persons committing multiple vicious acts or 14 which is ruthlessly self-centered psychopathic schemers he always had a plan and let the debate commence excellent all right well first I'm going to agree. He's probably a 22 at various points in his life. Um, well, he was never a one. There was never a justifiable homicide, but... I don't think... That's a, actually a really good point. Yeah. Like, I don't think anybody ever attacked Voldemort. He always... But he definitely... Things. Like, if you were to use just a checklist, I think he hit several of these categories mm. along the way. Interesting, though. So, category 17 are sexually perverse serial killers, and we never really get that as a primary motive here it's always power hungry 
Yeah, that's actually something I pointed out. Well, I didn't point out, but I, something I read often was that, I mean, he was ne- it was never rape. It was never anything like that. Now, again, these are children's books, so maybe that's one of the reasons. Well, also, when you told me that he had a child with Bellatrix Lestrange, I was ready to stand up and go, no, 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 he died a virgin, no. <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, it's in the in the literature. Uh, it's part of the canon. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I think, I think, honestly, we have to give him 22. It's Lord Voldemort. He is the epitome of evil. Right. I, um... No, um, no, I, I was just agreeing. Um, so category 21, right before 22, then we have psychopaths committing extreme torture, but not known to have killed. Um, so clearly uh, that's he's the not a 21. That's the Mansons. That's uh, Jim Jones. You know what right. I mean? Like they right. kill. They... And see, that's one thing that I like um, about Voldemort. Not what I, that mm. came out wrong, <laughs> but um, something that I can, there is no word for this. But anyway, <laughs> but the fact that he is a cult leader, he is manipulating people to do his bidding and kill people and everything like that. However, he walks the walk. He sure does. He does. And uh, I would also agree, he is definitely 22. He has to be, right? The one reason I put in, um, I think it was the 14, the schemers, is just because his thing is all power. It's almost not violence. I mean, he does enjoy the torture, I think, and probably the killing, but his almost all of them have an end game. It's not to kill just to kill. It's because he's getting power. He's get, he's proving a point. You know, something like that. Right. I mean, he is a ruthlessly self-centered psychopathic killer, which is 14. Right. That is true, but he's also further down the scale as well. But I think he has killed just to kill. Like, he killed the entire Riddle family to make one Horcrux. I suppose. But, I mean, he also did that because his father abandoned him. It's a hurt. He had a broken heart. That's what it was, Joe. He's a 22. (laughs) He's a 22. He has no emotions. He has no emotions. Well, honestly, you're probably right. I mean, I don't think he has a a conscience. I think he's a psychopath. That's that's true. Yeah, because I mean, like, there is no rage. Which makes the the sexual relationship with Bellatrix Lestrange all the all the more interesting to me. Even if there aren't any love emotions behind it, just the 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 need for that. I don't know. It's it so didn't happen. It didn't happen. All right, going to cut in. We're just agreeing on this one. There's not much of a debate. He seems to be a twenty two. He started two wars. Yes, <laughs> I have to go back. Yes. Um, which I will be curious to see as we do more and more of this podcast if we hit a real person um, that lands that far down the scale. So 22, Clinton, put it on the board. Put it on the board. board. Lord Voldemort, 22. And that's right next to nobody. (laughs) We have nobody near the 22 at this moment. Side note, we should really put our board up and put people on it. I'm keeping an Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) Well, I'll get us a real board. We'll put it right here on the wall. (laughs) It's going to be one of those, like, you know, measure your child. And it's just going (laughs) to... All right, so coming up next, we have our second story of murder and or mayhem, which is an unsolved murder. So we will not be ranking this serial killer, psychopath, murderer, whatever he or she may be. So I have the case of the boy in the box. It is a classic. Um, I know Rachel knows it. Clinton, do you know it? I do not. So I'm excited. Okay. This is why we have you around, Clinton, because you don't know. <laughs> I'm such a naive. The place. Fox Chase, Philadelphia, 1957. A young unnamed man checking his muskrat traps near a local park discovers a discarded <laughs> shipping box. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> We're just going to let this sink in. Just muskrat. Who's trapping muskrats? Uh, Do you eat them? 
people in Philadelphia know. Do you, you eat? Do you wear them? them? <laughs> I don't know what one does with a muskrat. I don't even know what a muskrat is. Is that really a thing? I don't know what a oh, muskrat yeah, is. Oh yeah, a muskrat's a thing. A muskrat's I mean, an animal. Right, but what is it? Oh, okay. Is it a rat? Or is, is it a musk? <laughs> They're adorable. Oh, I'm sorry. We Clinton, need to see pictures of muskrats. Clinton has just looked oh up muskrats. Oh my god, muskrats. they are really cute. They are rodent-y. Oh yes. yeah, yeah. But they are cute. I they thought look, I was looking. I was thinking more of a weasel. Yeah, they look more like beavers almost. Look at that one swimming. Adorable. They, they do shouldn't look be like trapped. beavers. Did you just look up beavers? <laughs> this is see, we're from Florida. If it doesn't look like an alligator, we don't know what it is. <laughs> That's true. All right, <clears throat> I'm gonna start. Over at the Sins. A young unnamed man checking his muskrat traps near a local park discovers a discarded shipping box once used for a bassinet. However, instead of a crib, the man finds a young dead boy naked and wrapped in a blanket inside the box. This man says nothing for fear of the police would confiscate his muskrat traps. Oh no. That makes me so sad for some reason. So apparently whatever you do with trapped muskrats, it's potentially not legal to be doing it at this time. Oh, I was just thinking that they're like, you have a dead baby, we're going to take your muskrat traps. I don't know. Is it illegal? Yeah, (laughs) I don't think it's illegal. I think trapping is probably illegal in a park. Gotcha. You know, if it's like a state-owned park. Sure. Fortunately, a few days later on February 25th, a college student spots a rabbit by the side of the road and gets out to make sure that the cute little bunny won't get caught in a trap. And while doing so, finds the boy. He, too, did not want to tell the police, but reluctantly made a report the following day. And so how, um, so between the two events, the original finding and the second finding of the dead boy, how long? Just a few days. Okay. It doesn't say the actual date of the first spotting, but the report was made on February 25th. Uh, this case is interesting because there seems to be quite a bit of evidence and it's all been investigated. There was no lack of police work and it's all been run down, but none of it leads anywhere. So let's start with the boy himself. His condition, when found, is a mystery because his death was determined to be blunt force trauma to his head. However, though the cold weather did help keep the body from decomposing, it made it impossible to determine when he actually died. He was between four and six years old and had evidence of being physically taken care of, though malnourished. I mean, he was only like 30 pounds and yeah. three feet tall. Wasn't there some, uh, like, the first assessment was that he might have been, like, an infant because he was so little, and then they they determined he was a little bit older than that. I didn't read that, but if he was, like, three feet tall, then there's no way they thought he was going to be an infant. Well, he was so tiny, and he was all packed into that box. Maybe. Maybe yeah. on first glance. Yeah. He was found naked, but recently cleaned. He had three scars on his body that gave the appearance to be surgical in nature. These scars were under his chin... One on his ankle and one at his groin. The weirdest detail to me is that his hair was recently cut. And some detectives thought that it had been cut after death because clumps of it were stuck to and around the body. So like he was wet and when his hair was cut and then it just didn't get washed off. The length of the hair even gave rise to the theory that the boy had been raised as a girl. And they actually went as far as to distribute flyers with a drawing of the boy with long hair like a girl. 
They took the boy to the morgue and put out major publicity, including a flyer in every electricity bill in Philadelphia. People from over 10 states came to view the body, but he was never claimed and he was buried in a potter's field. The evidence was extensive. The box itself was from JCPenney, but it is believed that it was discarded beforehand and the killer just used it because it was convenient. People tracked down the blanket as well as stuff found around the area, such as a blue man's corduroy cap, a child's scarf, and a man's handkerchief with the letter G on it. And none of it had any evidence pointing to anybody. Right. In 1998, the boy's body was exhumed to gather DNA, at which time they moved him to the Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook. A large plot was donated and a headstone that reads, America's Unknown Child. So at least he gets to rest in a nice place. Yeah, I mean, better than a potter's field, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, we had that discussion last time about Bella and the Witch Elm, where, like, they can't find her because they just oh, buried yeah. her they, in the ground. They just buried her somewhere. They don't know where she is. Yeah. You know? All right, so let's talk about the theories. Okay, so theory number one. There is a kind of town gossip theory that the family were people who were traveling, such as circus performers or migrant workers. This theory states that the boy's death was most likely an accident, but afraid of being accused of murder, they hid the body and never and never came forward. That has no evidence, just people saying things. I know, but it's not a, a far-fetched theory. I mean, it could be something like that. Uh, yeah, no, true. I mean, there's a reason why people are saying it, right. you know, but... And then I assume to go along... So, trying to walk through, you have a daughter or a son, whatever it is, Raising it potentially as a daughter, though, it you kill him accidentally, and then like cut the hair to help. Like, oh, if people come looking for a dead girl, they'll think of us, so we'll cut his hair and make it look like a boy. Like well, I, I'm, I don't know. There's a lot of right. Well, if they're saying that he was malnourished, he might have been with a family that just could not afford to take care of him, kind of thing. And then upon him, they maybe they thought it was kinder to 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 kill him than to let him starve. And then they cut his hair to make him look the best they could in death. You know, I mean, it might have been some kind of crazy, respectful way of uh, putting him to rest. I, I, I don't know. I mean, and the whole raised as a girl thing, I feel, is, is a more far-fetched theory than anything else. Right. What, what other... Which they're basing it on the hair. long hair. Yeah, the, that's the only thing they've got for that one, so. Because it was in the 50s and no boys had long hair, I guess. Right. It was before the hippies came. <laughs> All right. Theory number two. Uh, this is the foster home. This comes from Remington Bristow, who worked at the medical examiner's office in the 1960s. He became obsessed with the case and researched and investigated it until he died in 1993. Oh, wow. His theory was that the boy belonged to Catherine Nicoletti, the stepdaughter of a man that ran a foster home in the area. His name was Arthur Nicoletti. To save the stepdaughter from the shame of being known as an unwed mother, they got rid of the boy. Bristow even went to an estate sale at the home where he found a bassinet that may have been shipped in the box and blankets that seemed to match the one the boy was wrapped in. But his theory also came from the guidance of a psychic, so... I mean, that's interesting, though, that they they had a bassinet that might have come from JCPenney's, you know, I mean... Right. And they tracked that... Yeah. That, that box 
from the manufacturer or whatever to the JCPenney that it was sold from. And they sold 12 of those bassinets, but each person paid cash for it. So they didn't have any way of tracking the people who bought it. And then from those 12, eight of those people contacted the police and told them either they still had the box or they had thrown it away. They got down to the nitty-gritty details on that. Um, Okay, so a side note on that. In 1998, another detective went to interview Arthur and Catherine years later, and Catherine did admit that she had a young son that passed, but he was electrocuted on a coin-operated horsey ride. Oh, my God. Right? That's horrifying. Right? And they could say, like, he was buried in such and such grave. Like, I'm scared enough to go on, like carnival rides for sure but like the idea of just one of those little horses out in front of a store electrocuting someone you don't well, see you, them in what do you Clayton? <laughs> that's true you don't okay and at the time of this interview arthur and Catherine were now married ew so yeah that happened that's her stepfather yeah ew <laughs> what happened to with the mom <laughs> yikes Anyway, okay, so the third theory. Now, this is my theory. This is one that I subscribe to. It is in 2002, a woman identified as Martha or just M contacted the police and told them the following story. Actually, her psychiatrist contacted the police and said, I have a patient who who desperately wants to talk to you. Okay, her story follows. uh, Her mother was both physically and sexually abusive to her. And in the summer of 1954, bought a boy from his birth parents to do the same to him. The boy was held for two and a half years until one day at dinner, he threw up his baked beans, which was followed by an intense beating, which included his head being slammed on the floor. He was then given a bath where he died. The story seemed to be legit because only the medical examiner knew that the boy's stomach contained baked beans. Ooh. She claimed that her mother cut the boy's long hair and then put the body in the car trunk. M's mother drove to Fox Chase and made her help hide the body. She said that when they were about to move the body from the trunk into the park, a man stopped his car next to them and asked if they needed help. The mother had to convince him that they were fine before he would leave and they could finish. And apparently that was also corroborated by an independent witness that... Something like that did happen. The like the like the guy came forward and said, "I saw a woman out there with with her daughter or something like that." It would seem so. Okay, they didn't really go into a great detail about that, but I guess there was a witness that said, um, "During this time, I stopped and I saw these people." And da, da, da. <clears throat> though Martha's story was compelling, the police were unable to verify it, and they had misgivings of trusting her as she had a history of mental illness. But then again, who wouldn't? They lived through something like that. That would be insane. Right? If you didn't have mental illness, there's something wrong with you. If you lived through physical and sexual abuse all of your young adult life, or young life, all your life, and saw that happen to another kid. So the good news is, in August 2018, Barbara Ray Venter, who is the genealogist who worked to identify the Golden State Killer is using the same genetic methods to identify the boy in the box. 
And that's where our story ends. And that's where our story ends. Oh. But, I mean, it looks like they might be able to find his lineage, perhaps. Maybe. I'm not quite sure what you do after you... I mean, like, if he doesn't have descendants... That's true. If he was part of that abusive family, he was not related to them biologically, so you couldn't link him to them. No. It would be if, to the parents who gave him up. And if those parents had one kid and he died and he never had any kids, then... Well, typically you would go you know, through cousins and second cousins and all that, but... Wow, that's crazy. That's so sad. I mean, I hope they at least look at the Nicoletti family. I, I the baked beans thing is very revealing. It's pretty telling. Yeah, yeah. So it's this, it's an unsolved. I don't know if it will ever be solved. I know it seems like one of those cases that should be able to because they do have a wealth of evidence and they have all this information and stuff like that, and it's just it's just right out of their grasp. But yeah, the boy in the box is heartbreaking. Just unfair for this poor little kid. Yeah, but he has become like this symbol, symbol or whatever of all the children who have gone um, unidentified. Yeah, he does have quite a, a reputation in the true crime community. Yeah, the story is pretty well known. And, I, and this is one of those that it was nice to you know have a story where the policing was not half-assed. There was no mistakes. There was, I mean, like they especially in the fifties. Yeah, every piece of evidence. No matter how big or small, they ran down to there was nowhere else to go. So no. kudos to them. Kudos to them indeed. Shall we cite our sources? Yes, please. For the Lord Voldemort story, I used the Harry Potter books and my own brain. No, I also was looking at the Harry Potter wiki and the leakycauldron.org. And for the story of the boy in the box, my sources were BuzzFeed Unsolved. A&E article, The Boy in the Box, When Will We Finally Get Answers About the Famous Unsolved Murder by Hilary Schinfeld, and excerpts from the book, The Boy in the Box, The Unsolved Case of America's Unknown Child by David Stout. Clinton, do you have anything for the end of the episode? No. All right, everybody, that's all for us today. If you would like to reach us, you can uh, catch us at any of our social media. Yes, absolutely. You can find us on Facebook at Murder Brunch Podcast. Instagram, Murder Brunch. Twitter, Pod Murder. Our website, MurderBrunchPodcast.com. And if you'd like to send us a personal message, you can reach us by email at MurderBrunchBunch at gmail.com. He has such a clear voice. That's why we have him do this part. It's good. You're welcome. <laughs> it's good stuff. Uh, but yes, thanks again for listening. And we'll. Catch you on the flips. No, remember? <laughs> no. Oh, uh, oh, see, this is the part that you do so well, so why don't you do it? Okay, fine, I will. Okay. Everybody ready? Buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> Catch us next time where we will have more mayhem, more murder, and more snacks. Mm. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> That's the true sign. That, that never gets old.